Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello and welcome to Cross Section. It's Danny in the host chair today and I'm joined by Peter and Nicola. Um, Alicia's away in Scotland enjoying a short holiday. She ran away from London as fast as she could as soon as the King had finished giving his speech in Parliament this week. Uh, we'll get on to that and other news from the week in just a moment. Uh, as usual, we're going to dive into some of the stories that have been in the news this week and look at uh, what our faith can say and how it can help us to navigate various stories around news and culture. But before we get into that, I wonder whether uh, we're starting to get ready for Christmas. Um, I was in Sainsbury's the other the other day and there was a sign above one of the uh, check one of the aisles and it said it's never too early i had advent calendars selection boxes and everything else i think it'd been out since september frankly um and i think it can be too early but recently we've also seen various uh tv ads and the mns advert has caused particular controversy peter tell us about this one Oh, um, it, I think it's their food and clothing ad is out first. Apparently it's full of famous people, but I didn't recognize them. But Glenn Scrivener has done an amazing takedown with Speak Life. It's just the most atomized. There's, it's not only it's got rid of, it's not taking the Christ out of Christmas, as Glenn said. It's taking the fun, the celebration, the kids, the anything. They throw the board games away. Um, they um, take a blowtorch to Christmas cards, because why would you write to people and enjoy any kind of community and relationship? And I can't even remember the slogan. Then you're gonna to have to remind me. But it's basically, it's all about me. It's a, it's a, it, radically individualized Christmas. Love thismus. The MS slogan went. And what was fascinating was it caused controversy, but they ended up apologizing for the advert because a photo that they shared to Instagram had a red, a silver, and a green party hat burning in a fire fireplace great and apparently that obviously looked to some people like a palestinian flag and they apologized for that but they hadn't apologized at least not as far as i'm aware for the fact that they went for their as peter said very atomized individualized approach to christmas just Nicola, doing what makes you happy just doing what makes you happy that was the slogan just a reminder sorry so it's all about you sorry nicola <laughs> It's okay. Nicola, are you, are, you, are you ready for Christmas? No, not a chance. I'm usually, I was famous growing up for going and doing my Christmas shopping on the 23rd or 24th up and down Sucky Hall Street in Glasgow. I've tried the last few years to get a bit more ahead of it than that, using the internet a bit more, but I think I've got one present. Um, got it at Greenwich Market last weekend and that's about it. Well, most of my early preparations have been complicated family logistics of working out who's where, when, and what joint family activities we might be doing. Um, we're not, we're still in early November, so we're not going to spend all of this episode talking about Christmas as much as some people might to, might want to. Um, but this week, the, the, the biggest political thing that took place uh, was the King's speech. Uh, this is the ceremonial opening of the state's uh, session of Parliament. Nicola, can you tell us about what was announced in the King's speech? Yes, so um, this has been the King's speech, the first one since 2014, with as little as 21 pieces of legislation that's been announced in it. Uh, many of these are already things that we knew were in the works and uh, have been re-announced. 
um, to give a bit of an idea of what's included, there was five bills on law and order, which I think probably gives us a, an insight into what the Conservative election campaign is going to revolve around. Um, there was um, the bill on terrorism, Martin's Law, that um, we'll be doing a bit of work around in terms of um, them put, putting duties on venues that hold a certain capacity to put um, things in place to stop acts of terrorism. There was something on rental reform. There was things about transport. Um, there a new automated vehicles bill that paves the way for self-driving vehicles on British roads. <laughs> um, there was pledges to allow North Sea oil and gas licences to be awarded on an annual basis. And there was a ban on smoking. So they have promised that uh, children that are 14 at the moment will never be allowed to legally buy tobacco in the future because they'll up the age of sales on cigarettes every year um, from 2017. So I, like, I've heard, I've heard uh, people... On one extreme, I heard Chris Bryant, a Labour MP, say that this was such a light agenda it could be passed in two weeks and be done with. But I also heard someone saying this showed that the government was serious, it was a heavy agenda, it means that an election probably not going to be until January 2025. Um, any thought as to which of those are more likely? Um, I think it was an interesting one and there seemed to be no key big issue that this is definitely what they're going to be focusing on I think to be honest it'll probably my imagine I'm imagining the general election won't be for at least another year that there's no way they'll be able to push all this through in two weeks but some of it is already in the works so I think it's realistic that a decent amount of it will be in place quite quickly and it, it wasn't a particularly ambitious they dodged a few of the controversial ones there was no bill on um, social care or pensions and the rental reform that you just mentioned, Nicola, I think had been downgraded and slimmed down. Um, and Peter, there was also uh, no a discussion of conversion therapy in the King's speech. That's been something that had been quite heavily speculated on. Yes, well, I was most intrigued that there is a bill to introduce to deal with the scourge of unlicensed pedicabs in London that, that seemed to manage <laughs> to get up. Um, and a promise to strengthen the social fabric of the United Kingdom. That is the, the bizarreness of the King's speech, isn't it? These kind of wide overarching claims and then tiny bills. But you're right. Was conversion therapy going to be in? Much talked about. It has been dropped. And we thought that and we had indications that was the case. I mean, the government has... Um, flip-flopped, flip-flopped. I mean, it has gone back and forward on this one. I mean, it made the commitment 2018, I think. Danny, I looked to you to see if that's roughly around right. It's gone through three or four prime ministers, <laughs> it feels like. And I think it was Theresa May and uh, made it initially. And they just, I mean, they basically said that there is not, like the current law covers most aspects of this. Um, and so there's it would be virtue signaling in a sense to bring through a piece of legislation around this. But at the same time, government loves to virtue signal. So while it's not in the King's speech, that doesn't mean nothing will come forward. And that could be good or bad news, I suppose, is our view, isn't it, Danny? I mean, good news in one sense, no legislation, but legislation gets proper scrutiny. And the risk is they try and kind of push through some guidelines and, and other measures and regulations uh, kind of through the back door. And sometimes those get less scrutiny and can actually be more problematic in the long term. And of course, there's a risk that it gets tagged onto another bill somewhere 
and isn't probably again scrutinized and is unhelpful or is done in future by a different government. And that could also be difficult for us. So it's, uh, yes, good news for now, because we don't think it is ultimately necessary. Just to restate our position, harmful and abusive prices are wrong. Coercive and abusive prices are wrong. They are already illegal. They should be illegal. If there's any evidence that there's an area that's not, we would support legislation, but nobody has brought that evidence forward. And therefore, we basically agree with the government not bringing it forward now. So as you say, the, the risk is that it gets tagged onto a piece of legislation. I've seen a number of MPs this week uh, bemoaning the fact that it wasn't included and suggesting that they will be looking uh, for legislation. I, I'm reminded of what happened a few years ago in Northern Ireland when changes to both abortion and same-sex marriage were introduced in amendments uh, very quickly. Uh, so there was obviously a, a fear that that could happen or something along those lines could happen. Peter, what's your expectation about the election? When do you think that's going to come? Uh, almost as far away as possible. I think January 25 does feel slightly unlikely and trickier, but probably November 24, if I'm, if I was to have to put a, a bit of a guess right now. So almost as far as he can go. But I think stretching into January just doesn't suit the electorate that the Conservatives in particular want. So... Um, but he's got to get as far out as he can to try and meet some of the pledges that he's made, particularly around the economy. Yeah, common sense says that they don't want to be running an election campaign over Christmas next year. So I'm I'm with you. I think October, November next year is what we're looking at. But we're starting to think about the election. We're starting to plan what we will be doing uh, to help resource Christians and churches in the run-up to that election. And, well, we're hoping that we've got plenty of time to prepare for that, but we also have to be ready if it comes sooner. Uh, just a quick note on that, and we'll put a link to this in the notes. We're currently running a survey to find out what evangelicals think about politics, what their attitudes are, um, and that will help inform us, help us to represent evangelical Christians better in the run-up to the election, and also to produce resources. So uh, we'll put a link to that survey in the notes to this episode. So do take that and tell us what you think, what matters to you, what will change how you vote? Um, and in one question, what you think Jesus would do in the political system if he was alive today? So I said that the, the King's speech has been the biggest political news, and it kind of was, but actually what's really dominated the agenda this week is a discussion about the protest marches. Uh, protest marches have taken place in London every weekend for the last month. Um, over the situation in Israel and Gaza, uh, largely uh, being demanding action or calls for ceasefire. A lot of them uh, in support of the Palestine, uh, Gaza and Palestine, but they've also provoked quite a lot of controversy for anti-Semitic chants that have taken place in those marches and protests. So this weekend, with remembrance uh, celebrations taking place as well, there's been pressure put on the Metropolitan Police, the authority in London, to ban the march. Um, Rishi Sunak said that they were disrespectful. Uh, Suella Braverman, who is the Home Secretary, has spoken out against these marches. Um, but the police have said that they're not going to ban the marches. It didn't meet the threshold for that. Um, Peter, you're used to controversial marches in Northern Ireland. Should anyone be allowed to protest and march regardless of the cause? Well, I see Suella Breverman, uh, the Home Secretary, did in fact draw an analogy from our marching uh, in Northern Ireland. We have a tighter parades commission, I think slightly tighter legislation, but fundamentally, 
The right to free speech and protest is something that is well enshrined in UK law. We've had debates around that post-COVID and some legislation the government was bringing in. But my definite inclination is towards support for freedom of speech and freedom of protest. And I found actually uh, somebody quite helpful on this is Adam Wagner, who's a uh, KC lawyer um, who wrote a book around lockdown and uh, has talked a lot and represents a lot of protesters, but is very clear. He wrote a letter to the Times as a Jewish barrister, also talking about some of the anti-Semitism going on. But he, like me, would share a view that ultimately free speech and freedom to protest is an important right to have in a democracy and that we should incline towards that. If you like, the the less restrictions, the better. And I think there are some factual things here, as I understand it, the route is clear and doesn't go near the cenotaph. Um, And, uh, you know, there we have seen over the last few weeks issues at some of these protests for sure. And I have deep concerns at some of the things being said. And in this moment, part of me is like, oh, I'm really nervous about this protest and I'm not, I don't, support some of the aims of it. And I think there has been clear support for Hamas, which is clearly a terrorist organization prescribed under UK law. But but I think we need to be incredibly careful about reining in or restricting the right to protest and the right to free speech, even though there are times when I would like to get some just stop oil protesters off the road. And there are other protests that I would disagree with and don't want to see. It's the right of everybody in this moment. So I'm very hesitant to restrict it. And I'm very hesitant to see politicians telling the police who ultimately have the discretion in this matter when they should or shouldn't interfere. And I think we need to be careful about that in this moment. So there's a, there is an important question about the operational independence of the police and their ability to do that. Um, as a slight side point, I saw a poll of this is a, an American audience, but they asked, in general, in this conflict, do you side more with Israel or Hamas? So this wasn't about Palestinians, it was about Israel or Hamas. Um, and overall, it was 84% Israel, 16% Hamas. But among 18 to 24 year olds, 48% supported Hamas, which was just almost mind blowing. Uh, I think you can be critical of the way that Israel have engaged. Um, but that was fascinating. One of the one of the things that struck me, someone asked me earlier in the week as to whether they thought it would be wise to go on a protest that they broadly was sympathetic with um, the the Palestinian cause and they wanted to empathize and show solidarity with that would should they go on that even if there were more controversial elements to it so Nicola I'm not asking necessarily for your view on this but how do you think we should navigate that sort of thing where there may be a cause that we're in support of but some people are kind of in the way that they're protesting in what they're saying are acting in a way that we wouldn't support. So how how can we navigate some of those situations? I think this is really difficult and something I've been thinking about a lot. I know I've I've got friends who've went on the pro-Palestinian march who I assume are certainly not pro-Hamas, but want to show empathy for um, the people getting, the Palestinians getting caught up in it. I think uh, what you said earlier, Danny, about um, that poll on whether you're, um, you said with Israel or Hamas, I find that tricky because it's the way that the conflict is escalating. It's not just about Hamas or Israel. There are Palestinians who are not part of Hamas getting caught up in it. And I can see why people want to show their support for humanity. Um, so in terms of engaging with that, I think 
that I'm inclined to say that if there's elements of a protest that you don't stand behind, then don't get involved in it. There's other ways to be engaged. Emailing MPs, um, using social media, things like that would be my inclination. Um, but it's complicated and I can understand on both sides why um, pro-Israelis are getting out and marching. Um, Jews that feel like they're being um, discriminated against are getting out and marching. And I can see why pro-Palestinians are getting out and marching. It's tricky. The, the rationale that this person offered was that they were like, actually, well, if we want to have a more moderate voice, surely more moderate people need to take part in these protests and not just allow the extremists to dominate. Um, I thought that was somewhat naive because I think actually the problem is, is is that it's the extremists that get the attention and actually you end up being co-opted into that uh, regardless of that. Uh, Peter, how do you how do you think we can have a moderating voice in all sorts of debates, in all sorts of uh, conversations when often it is the more extreme views that, that get the airtime in the media? Yeah, I think it's a great question because I think with the right to protest and to speak are the responsibilities that come with that. And we often focus on the rights and not the responsibilities. So if you're going to organise a march um, and a protest march, we need to be responsible for the actions of everybody there, make sure they're well stewarded. And, you know, there have been discussions with the Mets around, Met around these ones, but each of us have to take responsibility for what we go to uh, when we exercise those rights. And I think it also goes to this nuance point of the good and bad. There, I, it's not as simple as saying one side is good or one side is bad in this. And almost all the stories we read, we like the simplicity of X is good, Y is bad. Right, that's really simple. I can deal with that because there's so many things coming at us. But actually, in, the, in all of these, there are more complicated moments where actors and particular people within the conflict here in Israel and Palestine and Gaza, there are moments when Israel has made mistakes and done things that I think are wrong and are a breach of international law. And there are moments when Hamas has done the same, and we want to be absolutely clear on that. Um, and and there is a difference between a prescribed organization and a state, um, and there are different standards they are held to account, and rightly so, around those things. But that nuance, lots of people are like, well, you're either pro-Israel or you're pro-Palestine. You're like, well, no, I can be absolutely sitting and saying that action is right, that action is wrong. Um, and the holding of hostages is absolutely abhorrent. Like there are children being held in this moment. That should be the clear front and center message from my point of view, I think, at this moment that these are still being held. But what happens is we often talk then about the legality or otherwise of a march and miss the underlying cause and our ability to talk in nuanced ways about this cause. And I think we're finding that in so many spaces, people want an, a simple narrative. What's the good? What's the bad? So I can align accordingly. And you're like, it's way more complicated than that. We are all, this does go to theology because we're all fallen individuals. So even though we aspire to do the right as Christians, we are fallen individuals living in a fallen world. And so we will get stuff wrong. That is part of what it is. And that's part of our, now, our theology, I think, in that moment gives us an understanding that's a better framing than the simple binary, who's right and who's wrong in this moment. We're like, well, we're all fallen. We're all going to get stuff wrong. But we still have a framework that tells us what what right looks like. And I think that's where it gets interesting for me to sort of reflect on these conversations. Because for me, I would say too many of my Christian friends are kind of falling into one of the two camps, Israel all good or Palestine all good. And, you know, the victims in these moments is like, come on, we can do way better than that. Let's engage in a much more constructive conversation about what this looks like. And we can call out right actions on both sides in a slightly different way. Avoiding a classic both sides thing as well. It's, again, that's the complication, isn't it? As soon as you try and nuance people's ah, but, ah, but, and you're like, yes, okay, we need to get into the next round of this conversation. 
but I think we can deal with that and we're actually up for the kind of complexities of this moment. And the Swala Bowerman is becoming a fascinating figure. There's been some suggestion that she is basically trying to provoke the Prime Minister into sacking her so she can take up the mantle of the right uh, for a future leadership election. But she also caused controversy this week for saying that, or suggesting that, well, charities should be banned from giving tents to homeless people. Um, John Kurt, who is the chief executive of member organisation Hope Into Action, he wrote a really helpful piece about this. He has decades of experience working in homelessness. And, and, and he said this, the answer to anti-tent rhetoric is not to encourage people to give out more tents. And it's that how can we find ways to solve problems without engaging into the kind of rhetorical conversation that just escalates it and makes everything more aggressive? Well, thank you for listening and joining us on Cross Section. Just a reminder that you can follow us uh, at the Evangelical Alliance on, twi on Twitter, I should say X as it is now known, EAUK News on Instagram, Evangelical Alliance, and please email us at cross.section at eauk.org. We love to hear your views, your opinions, what we're saying that interests you, what we say that you disagree with. Um, we often uh, respond to comments that, that are made, so please do get in touch. The final story that we're gonna look at on this episode of Cross Section is looking ahead to next week's General Synod. Um, I, I think I'm speaking correctly. None of us on this podcast are affiliated or part of the Church of England. So we're speaking from an outside perspective um, and you may well see some of our ignorance of the nuances and details of Church of England legislation in this following conversation. But uh, something that made the news this week, or at least the Christian news was a letter from a group called e Inclusive Evangelicals. Uh, Peter, can you uh, set out what they were saying? Yes, I can, Danny, if I hadn't uh, muted myself temporarily <laughs> to think about something there. Uh, they said that basically there was a group before this, wasn't there? Was there not another group of kind of... Um, there was a group called uh, Accepting Evangelicals. Accepting Evangelicals. They seem to have sort of disappeared and now there's a new group called Inclusive Evangelicals. That that in and of itself is probably part of the story too. Um, they're basically saying you can be evangelical and you can be inclusive of same-sex practice and marriage and blessings and all things. And they are largely Anglicans, almost exclusively Anglicans, and they're basically arguing. So when they say Inclusive Evangelicals, you should probably add the word Anglican to them. Um and they are neither inclusive nor evangelical, but that's a whole other thing. But they're certainly Anglican. <laughs> uh, let's give them that at the very least. Um, but but what does this mean? So their, their central point seems to be that the evangelical voice that is being heard in the Church of England in discussions at General Synod, they're saying that it has been too narrowed. Um, and the, the, the voice, particularly on General Synod, isn't uh, representative of all evangelicals. Is that a fair charge? I, I don't know, but I don't think so, in the sense that the whole variety of views are heard, um, and there are lots of people who take different views within the Anglican Church, and that's fine. I think the CEC and other groups that primarily represent evangelicals do represent what the chunk of evangelicals think. Um, and they are that they take the Bible seriously, as well as the other things within the Bebbington, Bebbington quadrilateral. Um, but the Hold core on, charge Peter, in that, Peter, Peter, you've got to, you've got to explain. 
oh no don't maybe do the badminton quadrilateral <laughs> after now um that we take um <laughs> jesus the cross the bible and activism seriously um are the four general points um of of the badminton quadrilateral uh david bemington who is still alive and and uh, based out of sterling he's quite an age now so a lot of evangelicals would say that's what they're adhering to but there isn't an absolutely fixed definition of evangelicalism so there that's part of why the term can be played around with but i would say the key aspect here is are we taking the bible seriously and most people who say they do would say look there are a number of critical text starting in Genesis frame through uh, Leviticus and a number of uh, Romans and Timothy and I'll forget them all and Corinthians around um, same-sex practice and what the Bible has to say on sex and then our inclusive evangelical friends was ah but Jesus never commented on this apart from the point where he said marriage is between a man and a woman and go and you know said no more to the lady um, and he reaffirmed marriage actually in in in, in his teachings and condemn pornea, sexual immorality. So this is where we disagree. So that's the text, I think, is really clear on that. There are groups who want to interpret all those texts differently. But what I think they would have to concede, and everybody does, that's a totally different read than has ever historically been the case and is the case in the church globally and is what church tradition and the text itself says. You're, you're reading something into the text and doing that in a different way. People can do that, and they do. That's why I don't think they're particularly evangelical in any meaningful sense. So you can co-opt a term and you can claim it. And I can then say, well, look, why don't I say that I live in a bungalow, even though it's a two-story building? Why don't I say I'm a meat-eating vegetarian? An article I once wrote, Danny, you'd be pleased to know and say, look, we can absolutely empty language of all meaning. Of course we can. And we can pretend that when we say we're inclusive, what we mean is we include everybody when actually the inclusive evangelicals don't. Because anybody who makes an exclusive claim and says that the biblical text actually has authority and says something aren't included in the inclusive evangelicals. I've no problem with them taking the view that they do. I think they're fundamentally wrong. And we've said that consistently. I do think the co-opting of language is a rather silly game to play because what you're now beginning to do is claim you're inclusive when you're not, claim you're evangelical when you're not in any meaningful way. And it just gets confusing. Just say you believe these things. We'll say we believe these things and we can have a proper and serious engagement around that. I, I saw something really interesting. Um, it was a, a Facebook uh, thread and it was someone who had signed the letter and their justification for signing it was that their their heritage was in the evangelical church. That was the church, the tradition that they grew up in and that that was also the particularly the style of worship that they would still most feel comfortable with and that that was why they would be comfortable still describing themselves as an evangelical they were actually pushing back at others who would agree with them on a more liberal view on sexuality but wouldn't want to describe themselves as evangelical uh, Nicola one thing that's I found fascinating is a while ago there was a lot of discussion about do evangelicals need to ditch the term because it's just too toxic <clears throat> yet now we seem to have people trying to jump onto the term because they want to kind of own it themselves. Do you think that's something that's happening beyond just these kind of high profile or social media conversations? Are people more comfortable calling themselves evangelical? Maybe, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but I think probably part of it is the church that's growing as the evangelical church. So I can see the attractiveness of still calling yourself an evangelical if you sit on the edges of that rather than a 
liberal Christian or whatever other labels pe people put on themselves because we're seeing the evangelical church grow. So there is there is something within the UK at least about the term evangelical and being part of an evangelical church that's attractive. Um, I think probably if we look over to the US, things are still a bit murky over there. And that's often why people struggle to use the term evangelical in the UK is because the connotations it has in other contexts. But in the UK in general, I don't think the term evangelical is overly negative. And it, I think that's that one of the, I've heard people say that they want to change what it means to be an evangelical to at least be honest about saying actually uh we want to change what evangelicals believe and that's why we're continuing to call ourselves evangelical at least there's some honesty on that whereas i think the the issue for me is that they're suggesting that there is a diversity of belief within evangelicals which i don't think is a reasonable representation and i we we have a we have a clear and obvious stake in this conversation and being able to define and understand what it means to be an evangelical is obviously of importance to us and i know that there's ongoing debate where some people would want a more firm doctrinal definition of these are the doctrinal beliefs that it will are required to consider yourself as an evangelical peter referred to the the bebbington definition which is more of a historical one that looks and says it observes evangelicals and says this is what we see evangelicals doing and believing and this is how we recognize them um, and then you nicola you're right in the us it is often a more cultural label that is less attached to particular beliefs or doctrines or practice but a cultural label that's offered um i said we we're going to discuss what's happening at general synod um it's co really complicated uh, is peter going to come in now <laughs> I don't think anybody knows what's happening at General Synod. I mean, we've had the House of Bishops are making recommendations. Quite unusually, then, a significant number of bishops within the House have critiqued that. It's sometimes helpful to know about the kind of number. Like, there's lots and lots of bishops. The House of Bishops is a much smaller number. I think about 50-odd bishops and about 12 or 14 have come out to, to kind of, with a minority report, if you like, around this. And then there's lots of procedural questions. Is this going to be done by the archbishops? I think they've agreed no. They are going to go through the House of Bishops, but they're not going to get a vote through the whole of Synod. And that's a risky way to go. And so they, this is all around whether they're going to do these pastoral kind of, uh, and, and the blessings, the language of blessing. And it, you know, the conservatives are saying and the evangelicals, if you're blessing the thing, you're saying it's good and that's not possible for us to do. And you shouldn't do that by a kind of fudge way through. You should take that through properly. And if you want to change the doctrine of the church, say you're changing the doctrine of the church. So there are legal challenges to how significant this blessing piece is. So one side's downplaying and saying it's not much, it's just a blessing. And the other saying, but hold on, that is a fundamental changing of our teaching. And you've said you're not changing the teaching and you kind of are. And I think actually both sides are pushing back to say we should be clear on what we're doing. Um, fudging isn't going to help anybody in this moment. So if we're going to try and change it, let's do it properly. The numbers almost certainly aren't there to make that change right now. That's why there's some reluctance. And even this week, there's talk, uh, it's just the Church Times are just reporting of, of uh, the Archbishop Justin Welby meeting with various groups and, and actually saying, like, did they have confidence in him? Should he remain in his role? And some of them saying clearly, you know, no, he should not. Um, I think it is probably time to say this has been a bit of a disaster for them in the end. 
Um, there you go. There's the quote. I've said it. Well, and, <laughs> and I think it has because I think people on both sides are really disappointed in this. I think uh, people who hold to traditional understanding of marriage are disappointed that these changes are being proposed. But then people who want more significant change feel that I've heard it described as scraps. So that a standalone service to bless a couple who are in a same-sex relationship or a civil partnership or a marriage, that will go through a longer process and will not come back to synod until at least 2025. Um, there will be some, if this goes through, allowance and this is where it gets complicated that within an existing service prayers and blessings can be said but that can't be the the focal point of that service uh, prayers can be said but they can't be said over rings um so you got this that people could be exchanging bracelets instead of rings because you can't pray for the rings it all feels like a terrible fudge um and it i, I, just, I think the only people who are happy or keen to see it over the lines are those who are very deeply invested in the process. Look, and we have to, this is the Church of England. It's hugely important, but it is not the be all and the end all. Um, so that's the first thing I think it's worth keeping in context. Um, but what happens in the Church of England does have an impact on everybody else. So that's important, but it doesn't determine things for everybody else. And so some of us in these moments are glad not to be Anglicans. And we need to be praying for our friends within the Anglican Church because of its parish structure and system and its influence, the seats it has in the House of Lords. All these things make it incredibly important. But it doesn't determine the spiritual health of the entire nation, even less so today. We know that from polling, like numbers are going down. So I want to both say it's really important, but it is not the be all and the end all. I think we have to hold that in mind. Um, apart from anything else, I think um, we're, we're on tour next week and you guys are all going to Northern Ireland while ironically <laughs> I'm going to England. But for example, the Church of Ireland is separate, has a very different view, and each of the nations has uh, different churches and different levels of influence. So it's that tension, isn't it, to say this is important that we do need to talk about it from time to time, but this actually doesn't determine our views um, as as. Christians individually, nor as an organization, and we have been clear, and nor does this determine the entire, like all that's going on in the church. Culture is obsessed with a conversation around sex, so we're going to have that conversation because culture wants us to. But more and more, we're saying actually marriage and family are good ideas that we're going to talk about. It's going to be between a male and a female. Our culture is shifting in the trans conversation around this and saying, actually, it is important to recognize that between what is a male and what is a female. And actually, there's increasing kind of voices coming to that conversation. So it should give us confidence and encouragement to say, these are important things. What it is to be made in the image of God, the kind of relationships he made us for. And this is still the aspiration of most people within our country. And actually, the social fabric, going back to the king's speech, they want to strengthen the social fabric of the United Kingdom. Well, the way in which you do that is have honest conversations about what it is to be made in the image of God, what it is to be an image bearer and, and have dignity and value and worth, what it is to be male and female, that the primary relationship is marriage between one man and one woman. And that doesn't undermine singleness. And it isn't just about the nuclear family. It's the extended family and way more than that. But that is the basis of the social fabric that we have as a society. When you pull that apart... There are consequences and there are issues that we'll have to wrestle with. That's the reality of living in a sinful world. Mm -hmm. So we want to say more than that because we always want to signpost towards Jesus and say, yes, we get stuff wrong. And yes, we mess up. And yes, this is a longer piece than I expected to say. But there is also <laughs> grace and mercy and forgiveness in that. So we're not holding it up as some sort of simple idea and saying, hey, if you fall short of that, there's a real problem. We're saying there's always a place of welcome. 
And that extend the family, what Jesus did was take that beyond blood and make it around water and baptism and say, anybody can come into his extended family. Anybody can be adopted into his family. And the way we manifest that and live that out is in local church communities. And that's where we begin to make the difference. And so he has redefined every one of those things as a single man. He came and said, I'm inviting you into this massive extended family, God's family. So he plays with all our kind of pedestals. We're not putting marriage on a pedestal. We're not putting the nuclear family on a pedestal. But we are saying there's a different way. And that's the invitation that we are wrestling with in this moment. And that for me is where this gets really interesting and exciting. As we wrestle with the challenges in society, we're offering an alternative story and the invitation into the God story, which is about radical transformation into a community of conviction and a community of compassion. Any would, anyone would think, Peter, that you might have a book out about what it means to be human. <laughs> I might. Thanks, um, Danny, for that plug. You can get that anywhere <laughs> where you get your books. I wasn't even reading from it. Um, well, I think that just about wraps us up for this episode. As Peter suggested, we are much of the advocacy team. We're in Northern Ireland next week. And in fact, Cross Section will be coming to you from Northern Ireland. I will be joined by David Smith, who leads our team in Northern Ireland, and uh, Dawn McAvoy, who leads our Both Lives Matter work uh, across the whole of the United Kingdom. So we'll be talking, we'll be talking about abortion. We'll be talking about what's happening in in that part of our culture and our politics at the moment. And we'll also be looking at where politics is going in Northern Ireland. So do tune in next week to find out more about that. I will be staying quiet. I'll be in the host chair again, relying on David and Dawn to bring all the insights to that. But thank you for joining us and do tune in soon. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.